A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. The Matthew Wright Show on Crucible of Broadcast Excellence. Talk Radio. Put it on and keep it on. Too busy to catch us on the afternoons on talk radio. Too many children to care for. Too many jobs to manage. Well, never fear. Help is here in the shape of the Matthew Wright podcast, where we cut down three hours of entertainment and enlightenment every afternoon into tiny bite-sized morsels just for you, you busy so-and-so. So sit back and enjoy the best of the Matthew Wright Show here on talk radio. Joining us to give uh, his first uh, taste of the budget, Andrew Carter, Chief Executive of the Centre for Cities. Welcome, lovely to see you. Hello, hello. Bit, bit of a mad... Because yeah, well, still going uh, on as well. He's only really just started, and, hasn't he? And notably, he's going to say something, you know, tremendous right at the end, just as we finish the conversation. Perhaps um, we could talk, uh, first of all, about a sort of a, a, an overview. Um, all the commentators were saying that it was going to be a, a big spending budget, and from what I'm seeing at the moment, there's plenty of spending going on. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think he framed it, you know, in, in a sense, from the very beginning, which is, you know, what do we need to do now in the immediate term to deal with, you know, the, the coronavirus and the sort of issues coming associated with that? But actually, then, what do we need to do when we think about the challenges that the country has in the terms of ways that it functions, different parts being much more productive than others? So he's trying to do two things at once. I would have thought um, just looking at Brexit and uh, trade deals would be a massive, massive headache. The notion that he now has to factor in coronavirus currently budgeted from the NHS's perspective at £30 billion extra set aside for that. That's a massive headache for him. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the civil servants and the OBR colleagues and, and all the rest of it that are trying to stitch these bits and pieces together, uh, I think I take, my, you know, I take my hats off to them. It's incredibly difficult to know, you know, what, what that looks like in the longer term. Is it wise to spend so heavily with trade deals to discuss and, and coronavirus hanging in the air, which, we, let's be honest, no-one knows how it's going to play out yet, whether we in two weeks' time could be a nation in quarantine as they are in Italy. This is true, but I think, you know, part, you know, the role of, the, of a government is to try and provide at least some certainty and clarity on where we're going. And I think that's the thing in the sense of saying, in the short run, you know, the virus will have the effects that it has. 
But in the longer run, we've got issues and questions in relation to Brexit. But we've also got issues in relation to the things that I care about, which is how other parts of the country outside of the Great East, Greater South East are getting on. Let's talk about that. Now, I don't have a lot that I've seen on the budget since you've been working away up through our lift system, which is a thing to experience. Those <laughs> Congratulations on making, making it. it. Thank you very um, much. <laughs> so so uh, there's, there's not a lot to come. But what, what we know in advance is that there, there's talk of moving uh, one in five Treasury workers out of London somewhere up north to the Midlands or the north. Does that suggest to you a, uh, a government that really is interested in levelling or a government that's interested in paying lip service to people who want to talk about levelling? I mean, I think take them at the word for the, for the minute. I think, you know, uh, the, I think they are genuinely interested from an economic point of view in trying to get more parts of the country you know, doing better than they currently are. But be, be clear as well, there are real political reasons for them doing this as well. In the sense, where they've won their, their election in part is in areas that they've not traditionally been. You need to, and they've been very clear on this, you need to respond politically to those voters. And I think that's part of the story. So there's an economic story, but there's also a politics story, which gives me greater confidence that they are going to take this more seriously than maybe otherwise. What would you like to see this afternoon from uh, Rishi Sinek? Well, I think we were saying very clearly, you know, very clear emphasis on uh, actually local government in the first instance, you know, putting back some of the money that's been lost. Now, we haven't heard anything a on that. That's a traditional sort of Tory plan, isn't it? Back to Thatcher's <laughs> days, is you make savings by reducing your outgoings to local government. Yeah, I mean, local uh, government, in a sense, has, has done a, a, a marvellous job, in a sense, of dealing up, with yeah. uh, quite severe cuts over the last decade. I think everybody agrees that, you know, that time has come where we need to reverse that. And not least, because that's the everyday life that people will experience. You know, this this is people on the street. If you go to places up and down the country like I do, yes, they might talk to you about trains or trams, right, much beloved by national politicians, but they want to talk to you about public services. They want to talk to you about parks. They want to talk to you about libraries. They want to talk to you about buses. Those are the kind of things that predominantly are the domain of local government. That's what we would want to see happen in the first instance. And then I think, you know, there's, there are other things around transport investment. We've heard a lot about that already, but actually we would lean in towards issues around buses as we would around uh, trains. I think that's a kind of important yeah. part as well. I mean, the, I mean, the, the, the go-ahead for HS3, which I still... Oh, sorry, HS2, rather, which I still find so peculiar because I live really next... Well, right next door to the HS2 building site and it's been around for, uh, well, many, many months before Boris Johnson uh, came into, off, uh, into office. Um, abolition of business rates, I can see, for this year, for retailers, a tax cut worth more than a billion pounds. Yeah, so basically, if you're a, if you're a business that now has a, you know, a turnover of less than 51k, you'll pay no business rates at least for the next 12 months. Too little, too late? Uh, well... Well, I think you it's know, come late, it's hasn't co- it? It's come late, and this is a, a kind of virus-related response. They've also committed to uh, a review of the business rates, but we've had several reviews, uh, you know, in the past. I do think we do need to review the business rate system. So everybody agrees that it's killing retail, it's but killing it. But no one really, there is no consensus on what we ought to do. Everybody agrees, review it. No one agrees on how, you know, what, what would be in its stead. And I think that is a real problem. You know, it raises thirty billion pounds annually to the government it's a chunky tax base it's fairly reliable you know if you're going to tinker but, and play but around with that it's fairly reliable but it's literally killing the people well, who no, pay no, it quite. I mean you, there's holes in every high street in the land well, quite. and more and more of them uh, there is the tension between you know on the government's perspective it's a nice consistent income stream but it's having differential issues up and down the country it's a new government uh, and this ostensibly seems like so far quite a generous budget 
but clearly it's going to be based on borrowing. Does it worry you that down the line we're going to have just to, about we're to going to have yeah. to pay for all this borrowing and uh, all the generous measures will be cancelled out? Well, I mean, as always, in a sense, the borrowing is not it's not inherently bad, bad. providing what we what we borrow is put to good use, uh, and you know we're kind of mindful uh, about that into the into the future so i think you know there's a recognition there is room for us to borrow particularly if we're invested in projects that are paying dividends down the road that seems to be what the obr is suggested in its uh in its analysis although i haven't looked at that in uh, in, in much detail so i'm a little bit less concerned currently you know that borrowing is in, inherently bad i'm you know i'm not in that sort of space i don't think others are either Debt as a share of GDP is forecast to fall from 79.5% to 75.2% by 2024-25. Yeah, not, not my domain, but increasingly, you know, there's a recognition that what we should be thinking about is the ability to service the debt. So, yeah. you know, the debt is... There's never been a better time for actually, nations to borrow money. Actually, yet. the question ultimately is, can you service the debt that you are incurring and can you give confidence to the markets and investors that you can service the debt? But then you have to look at sort of the background of growth, which again is sort of slightly uh, uh, overshadowed by coronavirus. I think, I mean, to my eyes, uh, forecasted growth prior to coronavirus uh, downgrades wasn't exactly uh, exciting or, or massively positive. It's all been downgraded across the because of uh, of coronavirus not looking good in the immediate future with brexit sort of trade deals sort of still to to finalize well unknowns but we've got you know yes, as you say, we've got four or five years where essentially you know growth uh, is averaged out at below two percent yeah i mean that you know that in itself is quite a remarkable position to be in given that prior to the financial crisis in 08 you know we were averaging growth at two and a half maybe up to two and three quarters percent year on year. And so, you know, we've we've lost a lot of GDP in that period. And actually, the new norm is, you know, looks to be for the for the foreseeable to be less than two percent, which does put pressure on making the decisions that will actually fuel future growth. The Matthew Wright Show on Talk Radio. I want to talk about uh, GCSEs, um, but I want to do it from uh, the angle of what they do in Finland because the transformation of uh, the Finnish education system began about 40 years ago and uh, educators had little idea it was so successful. It's been, uh, it's been attributed as, uh, as a major driving force to, to the country's economic recovery um, and, uh, as I said, they had no idea that their education system was so successful until the year 2000 um, when the first results from the Programme for International Student Assessment standardised test for 50 Olds in 40 countries around the world came in and revealed that uh, Finnish youth were the best young readers in the world. Three years later, uh, they were leading in maths. Uh, by 2006, they were the number one uh, country out of 57 in science. They also have some of the happiest children in the world. There are no mandated standardised tests in Finland, apart from one exam at the end of the student's senior year in high schools when they're 17, 18. There are no rankings, there's no comparisons, there's no co competition between student schools or regions. Finland schools are publicly funded. Uh, the people in the government agencies that run them, uh, whether national officials to local officials, are educators, they're not business people, they're not politicians, they're not lawyers, they're not military leaders. So, this brings us to uh, the head teacher of uh, the City of London Girls' School, Jenny 
Brown is her name, and she's uh, made big headlines today in The Times saying that uh, tired GCSEs should be scrapped because they wreak havoc in the lives of teenagers. Uh, she feels that the lack of choice, and I'm quoting here, the lack of choice, the blunt distinction between vocational and academic courses and the artificial packaging of supposedly isolated subjects does more harm than good in preparing children for careers that are characterised by fluidity and flexibility. Have we got the bravery? That's what she wants to know. Do we have the bravery to axe GCSEs? Should we? Jeff Barton joins us now, General Secretary at the Association of School and College Leavers and a former head teacher to boot. Afternoon to you, Jeff. Afternoon, Matthew. Uh, what are your thoughts on GCSEs, sir? Well, I'll tell you what I'd do. I would start by just going back to GCSE and, and the origin of what was a groundbreaking qualification back in about 1988, when Prior to that, uh, some of us got to do O-levels, some of yeah. us got to do CSEs. But what that meant was your teacher was making a decision about you before you set the exams. And it was always pretty difficult for those of us who were doing some CSEs to persuade people that actually that had a kind of um, a role as being as significant as if you got O-levels. So right. the idea of having one qualification, we mustn't forget, that was a really big step for the English education System. The problem is, I think, what we've had since then is quite a lot of tinkering with. Yes, I should say so. Yeah, most, most recently, a move to a different grading system, which yeah. is as, as baffling as the Da Vinci Code. But also, um, it, it is uh, the case that a young person now, compared to, say, three years ago, will be doing something like 33 hours of written exams, sitting at a desk, pe paper and pencil. Yeah. That, that does look a pretty old-fangled way of, of assessing people, given that back in 1988, perhaps after GCSEs, you would be leaving school. Now, no-one's leaving school. So the idea of, of stacking so much accountability and so much time onto a qualification at 16, it's right, we should say... Is it fit for purpose? Should we be looking at a different way of assessing young people? OK, uh, OK. Now you've piqued my interest, Jeff. So cause I'm, I'm thinking, if we look at GCSEs, I suppose there's broadly two functions, aside from... Um, well, I suppose we get an opportunity to uh, monitor, to assess the, the standards or the abilities of students to pass tests. Uh, and I guess we, we also can use that indicator to plan the future education of a student. How would we do that without GCSEs? Well, actually, Matthew, I'd, I'd say there's a third function on, as well. On. So you're absolutely right. We, we use it to, have to tell the, the child how well have you done. So it gives them that qualification. With that qualification, this is your second point, they then proceed either into a sixth form yeah. or to a college or whatever. But the third function, which makes us so different from every other country in the world, is at 16, we then use those results to judge the teacher, to judge the head teacher to judge the school and come up Great with performance point. tables. Great now, point. that that looks to me at a time when we are struggling to be able to recruit teachers and leaders like one of the crushing aspects of this because, you know, the schools in the, in the communities that need the best teachers and the best leaders are the ones that under our accountability system find it hardest to recruit and hardest to do well. And so if what's being said by the C C City of London Girls' School head teacher today is we really have to declutter this. We have to take the pressure out That's... in some part for students, but also for the system, then we would support that. The Matthew Wright Show on Talk Radio. Right now, I'm, I'm, I want to talk about uh, one of the unexpected uh, knock-on effects of those selfish idiots hoarding loads of food because of coronavirus. And that is how it's negatively impacting on the millions or hundreds of thousands of people who rely on food banks. How? Why? Uh, Rajesh Makwana from the uh, Sufra Food Bank and Community Kitchen is going to try and talk us through it. Um, he joins us on the line now. Afternoon, Rajesh. 
Hello, how are you doing? I'm good, thank you. I'm good. I, I must admit, I, 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 the hoarding, the images of hoarding, um, I, I find quite sickening, actually. The idea, especially people hoarding toilet paper, which they probably won't even need, even if they get coronavirus. How is it impacting on food banks, though, Rajesh? Um, in so many different ways. I mean, it's, we're really into a bit of a crisis situation here, trying to manage our response to the coronavirus. Um, yes, we do rely on, on donations and they're affected, um, but we also, we also purchase much of the food that we distribute and there's issues with getting hold of stock. So, I mean, yeah, absolutely. Toilet roll is one of the things that we make sure that um, is in all of the food parcels that we give to the guests that come to Sifra. Um, and that's, we're not going to be able to give that out for sure. I, I'm still reeling from a, a statistic I read, uh, it might have been, I think the back end of last year, that there are more food banks in the UK than there are McDonald's restaurants. Yeah, I was shocked when it I read that as well. It just my mind. Uh, extraordinary. Yeah. It is. I mean, look, the reality is there shouldn't be food banks in one of the world's richest countries. Well said. You know, it's an absolute injustice that they exist, and not only do they exist, um, there are more and more of them, and they're getting busier and busier. Certainly, we are. We, we, we uh, in the last financial year, distributed the equivalent of nine, over 9,500 food parcels, and that's three times as many as three years back. And, this, and that's the last financial year. This financial year, um, we're coming towards the end of, um, we're likely to see a significant increase on that as well. Even though, even though the politicians are sort of giving us the, the impression that austerity is being, um, well, it's, it's, it's over, we've been told that. Yes, we've been told that, but I'm not sure that it's true. Certainly doesn't seem to translate um, into a reality for the poorest in society, those who are most vulnerable. Where do where do you get most of the food from? Is it from um, shoppers' donations? Well, around a third of our food is donated. So right. when I say food, our typical food parcel um, contains toiletries as well, as well as baby products, in, in fact, you know, nappies, sanitary towels, toothpaste, toilet roll, etc. Um, so about a third of that is donated by our massive community of supporters. Um, but the rest of it, we have to purchase. Because, of course, if you're going to give some food, something to the food bank, you're very unlikely to donate sanitary towels or toilet roll you're more likely to give a packet of pasta and some baked beans, yes. for example. Yes. Right? Um, but, um, but yeah, so we, we, it's a combination. I, I didn't re- I, I'll be honest, I didn't realise it, 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 it was uh, so varied, actually. I assumed it was either the supermarkets or food manufacturers giving you a bunch and, and shoppers' donations as well. I didn't actually realise you were having to spend real money buying stuff in. Absolutely. We have, you know, we have a budget that's way too big that we need to put towards this because the reason for our existence is to make sure that people have some of the most essential food that they need to survive when they need it the most. And these aren't people that are reliant uh, or I should say dependent upon the food bank. The majority of people only use the food bank a handful of times a year, if that, two or three times. And the reason uh, and the reason they do is because they're experiencing some sort of um, financial crisis at that moment in their lives. It may be because of universal credit and the delays yeah. receiving payments. It may be one of several other major factors. What about um, a message um, to those that are hoarding, have hoarded? Um, I don't know whether whether we could look at this two ways. Address people who are thinking about going to the supermarket and clearing the shelves. And then a word for those who have already cleared the shelves and uh, are maybe sitting pretty on a mountain of baked beans and toilet roll. And when people are going without, what, what would you say to those two groups of people? 
Well, I would say that the problems that we're facing in society are largely there because um, of too much self-interest and not enough sharing, not enough understanding that, you know, we are a community, you know, and we need to work together to look after everybody. And when a crisis hits like this, for everybody to just be focusing on their own needs, you know, again, plays into that problem. And what we need is we need to recognize that we to create a good society it needs to be a sharing society would you say what i would say is would you you say those with an excess of tinned food toiletries toilet paper uht milk which i know is running low in a lot of food banks would you urge them to um to do the right thing and maybe give some of their excess to a food bank of course i would i mean the reality is most people who can afford to bulk buy and to stock up in that way, have other means to make sure that they get the food that they need to survive. The people who are knocking on our door day in, day out, they don't. They are literally, their cupboards are empty and they don't have the means to bulk buy. And now when they really are in need and they get a bit of money from wherever, they go to the supermarket and the shelves are empty, that's really going to impact them. And if you enjoyed all of that, make sure you tune in to The Matthew Wright Show with Kevin O'Sullivan every weekday from 1 on Talk Radio.